0: Hey guys, JB. Um, today's show is the final episode in what we've been doing all through February, which is commemorating Black History Month by talking about the history of African Americans in this country as it relates to the economy, the stock market, etc. And I think I I really saved the most impactful episode I wanted to do for last. So what we're going to talk about today is a book called The Burning. And The Burning was written by Tim Madigan about 20 years ago, uh, actually almost to the week or to the month. And he's a a journalist, worked at a big newspaper in Texas and was assigned an article. And upon being assigned the article, he basically ended up in a situation where he had to research something that he almost didn't believe could have possibly happened. And- This is the true story of the burning of Black Wall Street, and this episode really means a lot to me because when I first became aware of this event in U.S. history, I said the same thing. I said, how could this have happened? And nobody's aware of it. Two things. First, how could this have happened? But second, how come nobody even knows this story? How come we've never been taught this story? So you're going to learn a lot today about an episode in American history that is starting to get more attention but for decades and decades it was almost something that it was always something that was too terrible to speak of and so teachers didn't really teach it you didn't learn about this in school and now all of a sudden there's this kind of awakening around this event and so i really want you to just kind of absorb it the way that i have and carefully consider the takeaways from this but Tim's going to come on in a second, and his book was published 20 years ago, but the event that that he's chronicled actually took place in June of 1921. So it's almost June of 2021, so the 100th anniversary of this terrible, terrible day in American history is coming up this summer. And by listening to this episode of The Compound Show, you're going to have a really good understanding of what went on. And I think you're going to be shocked uh, if you haven't done the research and you haven't read about this on your own. I really think you're going to be you're going to be shocked at what you're going to hear. So I'm I'm really appreciative of all of you taking this journey with me over the last few weeks and allowing me to cover this topic and to make it relevant to today, uh, which I, I really tried hard to do. And uh, we will get back to our regularly scheduled programming next week of stock market and economic mayhem. But for right now, I want you guys to settle in, listen to uh, my discussion with Tim Madigan, the author of The Burning, and learn about the day that Black Wall Street was destroyed. Thanks for listening, guys. Here's, uh, Here's the music, and then we'll get right into it.
1: Compound
0: Show with Downtown Josh Brown. Are you what the hottest financial podcast on Wall Street? Are we helping millions of people to make smart decisions, grow wealth, and secure the bag?
1: Welcome to the Compound Show with Downtown Josh Brown. Josh is the CEO of RIT Holtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Josh or any podcast guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of RIT Holtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: The compound show. Okay, Tim Madigan is here. How are you, sir? I'm terrific. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to have you here today. Um, uh, just a, a quick introduction, but you spent about 30 years writing for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram newspaper, among many other publications. And then one day an editor assigned you a story, and it's a story about probably the worst racial massacre in U.S. history, and you realize that you really hadn't heard anything about it beforehand or not much about it. Is that right?
1: It was was stunning. Um, That is absolutely correct. It was uh – I guess it was around the early in the year 2000. And my boss came up to me and handed me a wire story about uh, the Tulsa race riot commission. And, and in that story, it said up to 300 people had been slaughtered, most of them African-American by this white mom. And I looked at her, I looked at her and I go, what, right. If this is indeed true, how could we not have known about this? I mean, you would think there'd be one of the watershed moments and of our history. And she said, I had the same reaction. So she sent me to Tulsa. It was again, as 20 years ago. And fortunately at the time I could interview several survivors and the people who were working really hard to try to restore this to history. And I came back to Fort Worth and I wrote a piece that ran under the headline of uh, Tulsa's terrible secret. And uh, that, uh, that ultimately led to the book.
0: All right. So I found the book after Having Like most Americans um, who recently became aware of this incident in American history, last October, HBO had a series called Watchmen, which debuted, and it was very highly anticipated, great cast. A lot of people were familiar with the graphic novels, which I guess were from the 80s. So the first scene of the first episode of the show is a dramatization of this this Tulsa massacre, and – I think like the entire country went on Twitter and then went on Google all at once and said, wait a minute, what the hell is this? This this can't be real. Like this cannot have happened. And the HBO version didn't really seem very far off from the version written in your book, which I ultimately found because I was just like, wait a minute, the KKK, the US Army, World War One era biplanes, firebombing, how how could this have really happened and no one's ever learned about it before? But I feel like America just had this collective experience. Now your book turns this month, I think, 20 years old. Your book is called The Burning, and the event itself turns 100 this June. Have you been thinking a lot about that recently?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's probably an understatement. Um, to your point about Watchmen, even after my book was written, there there continued to be this collective amnesia regarding this this issue and so much of our issues regarding race. And I think part of the deal when my book was published is, is that the nation just wasn't ready to have this discussion yet or look at it. And I always felt like it was going to be something like a movie that was going to be necessary to introduce this to a mass audience. And so sure enough, uh, Watchmen happened. And the, and the and the reason Watchmen happened is because one of the producers had the same experience I did, finding out about it, thought it was horrible, wanted to do something with it.
0: Damon Lindelof, who had Correct. produced Lost and many other hit TV series.
1: Correct. And uh, part of their research was my book. And they used the book as significantly uh, for their source material. And it was kind of interesting to see a lot of the things I'd written about come to the screen like that. But I talked to Nicole Castle, the director. About that, and about this whole thing with Tulsa, and she said that she learned that the night of, or the night or within twenty four hours after the premiere of that pilot episode, that there were something like five hundred thousand Google searches on the Tulsa race massacre. I believe it. The biggest question was, did this really happen? And of course, uh, we know the answer to that.
0: So it does take a movie or a TV show often to make people aware of things that they weren't taught in school, and then to make them really care about them. And I think that scene, as hard as it is to watch, was extremely effective in getting people to the point where they're like, wait a minute, this can't be real. But we're going to go a little bit deeper because we're going to we're gonna work with your book, and we're going to tell everyone today a story that they have not really been taught. And probably their only exposure to it was – That The opening scene of season one of The Watchmen, and we're going to give people a little bit of a better idea of the context in which something like this had happened, and we'll talk about some of the misconceptions, and then we'll talk about the aftermath. So your story really begins, I mean, it's hard to pick a beginning, you can pick the Civil War, but I feel like it really kicks off when somebody discovers petroleum oil in, uh, let's say, 10 or 20 miles South of Tulsa, which at that time is what maybe like a, a fort left over from fighting the Indians or what, what is really in Tulsa
1: at the time? It was, uh, very much a, just a village, essentially, okay. uh, a trading, a trading village, uh, for native Americans, um, on the, on the river. Uh, it had started to pick up a little bit, uh, because of some railroad activity in the area. And uh it was in I think in November of nineteen oh five when there was this huge oil strike. Right. Uh and, and turned into one of the most productive oil fields in, in history, frankly.
0: So Tulsa becomes a boom town, like yeah, a western I mean, well, boom town.
1: Like almost overnight, it becomes this boom town. Skyscrapers sprout almost overnight. The money people are making money hand over fist. There was this kind of symbiotic relationship that developed between the white, the affluent white people and the black people who eventually formed a community just north of the railroad tracks. Uh, in that, these people would know that the affluent whites would need gardeners and maids and chauffeurs and Chushine Boys and et cetera, et cetera. And so they would go north across the tracks to work every day, be paid very well, relatively, and then come back home. With money in their pockets, right, and they would need, and then, and then to serve those people, this uh, very prominent professional class, uh, entrepreneurial class, developed with doctors, lawyers, hoteliers, newspaper people, drugstores, uh, just you know, a, a complete kind of self-contained uh, economic community there. To the extent that Booker T. Washington, I think, was the one who, when he after he visited, called Tulsa the Negro Wall Street of America, and right. so it was. It was. It had become known. It had had a reputation across the country as the place to be if you're an African American.
0: Okay, so this is Greenwood, and this is basically um, a lot of the money that's coming out of the oil business for Tulsa is finding its way into the banks and into the pockets of people who lived north of the tracks and their African-American communities. And a lot of them had come from places where, you know, they, they really were looking for that kind of boomtown and they wanted to be amongst each other. They'd been chased out of places like Memphis and some of the characters in your story, uh, all, all real people who lived and you know, photographs of them. They finally found a place where they could do business, own a home, do business with banks work across the tracks with whites and blacks. And it was, how long did that go on for? Is it 20 years?
1: Well, it went on, to, you know, it really started uh, in 19, started in 1905 with the arrival of uh, a guy named John Stratford and uh, O.W. Gurley, a couple of very enterprising entrepreneurs who who basically saw the potential here. And they're the ones who really started the, started this. And so from 19, 1905 until 1921, you know, just things grew and grew and grew. But your point is, your point is very well taken in that so many people came to Greenwood, came to Tulsa for precisely that reason. In fact, one of the chapters in my book is titled Beyond Hatred's Reach. They figured that they had left the worst of the Jim Crow South behind, that they could come to this place and and make money and just kind of live their lives, raise their families uh, and you know, in peace without, uh, without fear of the terrible violence and, and, uh, and Jim Crow policies that were in place in so many other right, places. Right, because
0: Tulsa's the West. Tulsa's not the South. And it's a frontier. Is it even a state at this? When, when does it achieve
1: statehood? You know, that's a good question. It was right around this time. I think it was a yeah. few years prior. Don't quote me on that. Very soon after statehood, One of the first things that the Oklahoma legislature did was create their own set of Jim Crow laws. And so, frankly, this belief of so many people that came to Greenwood was naive. That in the United States in 1920, there was really no escaping it. Um, uh, Because it it was almost inevitable that, you know, anything so visible, anything so successful... Was destined to, to run into serious trouble from from the white community.
0: Yeah, because you have poor whites who are also attracted to uh, working on the, the oil fields, and you call them the roughnecks, and they do not like seeing black entrepreneurs in chauffeured automobiles going up and down the street, and they, they are barely making money. So you've already got that cross current of racial and class tension, and it's almost like it's, it's on a low boil when we first start uh, hearing about Greenwood in that 1905, 1910
1: period of time. I don't know the extent to which people in Greenwood really kind of realized that the boiling was happening. But in those days, if you were a successful African-American, you were uppity. I mean, it's not, you know, it's perhaps not fair to generalize so completely, but that's what these people ran into uh, when they became successful. And so like who do you think you are? Don't you know where you know I'm your
0: better? Exactly. And economically, it wasn't the case, which makes people even more infuriated uh, when they feel as though they've they've lost their they've lost their place in society to someone who they deem to be not as worthy as they
1: are. And you know that you know that that whole notion was so deeply ingrained in our culture at the time of of racial superiority, and it, yeah. and it was advocated by at the highest levels of our government from uh, from Woodrow Wilson on down. So, I mean, and, you know, there was this whole debate in the African-American community at the time. On one hand was Booker T. Washington and another hand was W.E.B. DuBois. And, you know, DuBois said, we're going to fight for what we're going to fight to prove ourselves. Washington said, we're just going to be treated the same by being industrious and in getting educated and working hard. Uh, But there was that whole notion of superiority is kind of underlies so much of this. Right. So so Washington's basically saying we're going to make ourselves so
0: valuable and so useful to the communities in which we live. Is that the cast your bucket uh, conceit where like they can't live without us? Yes. And then Dubois, I guess, is Harvard educated, but a little bit more of a a, a rabble rouser. And he's saying they're not going to take another thing from us. After everything we've been through. Right. Okay. So now here's where I want to go next. During this period of time, we're also seeing the resurrection of the Ku Klux Klan. Right. And you tell this story about how during Reconstruction, you basically got some Confederate soldiers laying around, nothing much to do, come up with this idea to start pranking people in white sheets, but then it takes on a life of its, its own and becomes... Uh, a political movement; it's quickly squashed by 1870, mm-hmm. uh, or in the 1870s. But then it's brought back around this time, and some of the leading citizens in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, some of the leading politicians and 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 wealthiest people have become Klansmen to some level or another. And I think that that really becomes a big part of the backdrop here.
1: Well, it is, and it's unknown. Precisely to the the extent to which the Klan played a role in this, but the fact that the Klan had become a dominant part of our society in in that time is symptomatic of the of the environment that that we were living in at the time. And you know, it goes back to uh, another thing that completely astounded me was the first great cinematic blockbuster in history, or what many consider to be is Birth of a Nation by W.D. Griffith, Griffith, which is nothing more than a celebration of the resurgent Klan, and it invoked uh, the most vile racial stereotypes you can imagine. And and again, it was endorsed by Woodrow Wilson, the Chief Justice and chief justice of the Supreme Court, and cheered by audiences in, in North and South alike.
0: It was Titanic, or it was Gone with the Wind, right. you know, decades
1: before those films. It right. Was like- and, and so that was, so the Klan was mainstream for lack of a better yeah. way of putting it. But that was the, that was kind of the cauldron into which uh, You know, we started to walk towards in, in the 1920. All right. So
0: let's talk about the spark that, that leads to the conflagration. It's, it's late May in 1921. So almost a hundred years ago uh, or a hundred years ago this summer. And there's a fairly inconsequential uh, teenage African-American boy who has a slight altercation with a teenage white girl in a department store elevator. And by the end of that day, the boy's on the run, gets arrested, and all hell breaks loose. Can you tell us
1: kind of like how that got started? Well, the boy's name is Dick Rowland, a shine boy in downtown Tulsa, white Tulsa, who... I say inconsequential, like he's
0: not, he's not important other than as a spark, no, to this whole as, thing. Uh, you
1: know, he was a, kid. even Greenwood people thought he was kind of a ne'er do well, I think. But anyway, he rides the elevator to use the restroom. Something happens, whether the elevator jolts and he steps on her, or grabs her arm or whatever. And there was some, some su- suggestion that the two of them knew one another anyway. Anyway, he runs out, she screams, he runs out. And boy, that is a, not a good thing. If you're a young African-American uh male to be accused of assault by a white woman, especially a girl. And
0: he's on the wrong side of the tracks at that time. He's on in the in the white part of Tulsa. Right. And okay.
1: So they go and pick him up and the police investigate. And I think the police immediately seemed to seem to come to the conclusion that this wasn't, there was probably no merit to these charges. That I think, you know, my sense of it is that he was being held in custody as much for his own protection as anything. And it might have completely dissipated were it not for uh, an editorial in the Tulsa Tribune um, uh, written by uh, the editor named Richard Lloyd-Jones, who basically was trying to compete in a newspaper war by just kind of uh, playing the race card for the short way of putting it. But he basically calls for, he
0: calls for a lynching in the newspaper and the newspaper is really powerful in that day and age.
1: The headline was to lynch Negro tonight. And within minutes of that hitting the street, crowds started to form at the courthouse because at the time, lynching was kind of a spectator sport. And within hours, hundreds of people had gotten to the courthouse Anyway, words word quickly gets back to Greenwood. This paper gets back to Greenwood and all of a sudden, you know, the elders of Greenwood and many World War 1 veterans, African American veterans say this isn't going to happen here. It's not going to happen here. They've cuz they've already
0: been at this point race riots or or lynchings or they've already heard and and read about similar events in DC and Chicago, right? Like this has happened elsewhere and they say, not here. Like this couldn't happen here because that's how at home they felt right? in their own, in their, in this amazing community that they've built. So, so that's the rallying cry.
1: Especially after their service in world war one, where they figured that that would prove that they were worthy of respect um, and better treatment. So anyway, they, they take steps to, uh, The crowd grows, darkness comes, Uh, the African-American groups take steps to say, we're not going to leave it to this well-intentioned white sheriff to protect this guy. We're going to help. We're going to go down there and make sure that it happens. And this cadre of uh, up to 70, you know, actually two, one smaller, one larger later on in the evening, go to this, go march through this white mob to the courthouse and say, Sheriff, we're here to help you. The sheriff says, I don't need your help, boys. You're just inflaming things. But on the second trip to the courthouse. Well, Tim, let's back up because you
0: you write this so cinematically. It's amazing the level of detail you have. I don't want to say minute by minute, but hour by hour, these things all taking place in a very specific order to produce what ends up happening. But here you have two or three carloads of armed African-American men ride up to a mob of, let's say, 500 furious probably drunk because it's the 1920s right um white people just after dark who think that there's an attempted teenage black racist being protected inside of this jail right so having these carloads of armed black men showing up is probably not a great idea however there was a lynching the week prior of a white kid mm-hmm. so they knew if they didn't take action that this boy sitting in jail was probably going to be killed So it's almost like an impossible situation for anyone to stay calm about.
1: Uh, Your description uh, is brilliant. I mean, it's spot on. I mean, it was just the heat kept growing and growing and growing because you're right. I mean, there had been a lynching of a white person just a short time before, and it was completely reasonable for the African-Americans in Greenwood to think that if they didn't intervene, that it was going to happen again.
0: If they if they'll hang a white kid, they'll definitely hang a black kid for sure.
1: But there's no question that it was inflammatory to the extreme. You know,
0: you have a you have a protagonist here too. You have a you have a hero. Like I'm trying to p- picture, like what ho- current Hollywood actor would play him? But you have this guy, Sheriff McCullough, who had been haunted by witnessing a lynching years earlier. He's got the kid in custody. And he's sitting on the fourth floor of this jailhouse building, uh, guarding him. And he's basically saying, "No matter what, I'm not letting another kid get lynched on my watch." And he's got to keep this mob uh, from breaking in and 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 taking
1: uh, Roland. Well, I cast Sam Elliott in that role. I think I love uh, it. Okay. Uh, and you're exactly right. He basically told the mob, if he, "You're going to have to kill me to get to this get to this kid." And what he did was he. That's on the fourth floor of the courthouse, brought him up there, put him in a cell, disabled the disabled the elevator. So the only way up there was on was single file up the stairs. And I think that I think everyone believes that he would have made good on, on his promise. So now you've got armed
0: African American men on the nor- on the south side of the tracks, uh, in in Tulsa, like right in the town square. And you've got armed, you've got an armed white mob that by this point have been outside screaming for hours. And it seems as though a shot is accidentally fired. There's an altercation between one member of each side and then a a gun goes off and then that's it. Yep.
1: That's it. I mean, that's okay. Then what happens? uh, There was a, uh, the story is an old white guy uh, tried to grab the gun of one of the African American veterans saying, what are you going to do with that gun? uh inward and the guy says i'm going to use it if i have to and, and the white guy says that kill you are and he grabs it The shot the shot is fired but that is like there is no turning back after that because there was a lot of guns in that crowd on both sides and i think when the when the smoke had cleared there was up to 12 people who were who were dead at the courthouse just in that opening barrage yes of violence yes right. um, people were diving behind trees and cars and uh buildings to try to get out of the line of fire. And then at some point, the African-Americans initiate what is essentially a fighting retreat, um, basically fighting their way back north until they can back get back across the railroad tracks into Greenwood.
0: And wa- and warn everyone, like, here's what just happened. They didn't know what was coming yet, but here's what just happened. It's interesting. This is 1921. So on both sides, you've got a lot of people who just came back from Europe and had been trained in things like fighting retreats and sniper, uh, you know, s- sniper postures. And they know what they're doing with guns, which makes it even more deadly. Right.
1: Yeah, that's that's true. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, they get back to Greenwood and I think that everybody in Greenwood knew what was to come. And, you know, the moment that first shot was fired, as a historian, Scott Elzer told me, Dick Rowland became an afterthought. Nobody cared yeah. about Dick Rowland anymore. I mean yeah. they uh, the the ultimate affront had been delivered to the white mob and and that would not go unanswered.
0: So throughout the night there's gunfire you can hear it everywhere and you've got bi- people in Greenwood who have put down roots and invested and built businesses and I don't want to say that they think it's out sal- the situation salvageable I think at this point they realize everything they spent their whole lives building is probably gone. They don't know to what extent yet. But you know, you talk about a lot of these great entrepreneurs in the African American community in Greenwood. Uh the grocer comes to mind, for example. Um I, I forget I forget his name. Obi Man, I think you're probably referring to. Yeah, so he's one of the most successful business people anywhere in Tulsa, but in Greenwood specifically, he's kind of like a pillar of the community. People like him have the most – like they have a, a lifetime worth, worth of uh, material wealth to lose. They don't realize to what extent the loss of life is going to dwarf economic losses at this
1: point, right? Yeah, I don't think anybody could have predicted, even in their worst assessment of this, that anyone could have predicted what it ulti- ultimately ended up to be.
0: Right. Okay, so, so you have this situation where uh, it's almost dawn, and it's been a horrible night. And there's been shooting, there's been broken glass, there's been um, scuffles everywhere, people being chased down, but there's no internet. So people who live in the city, just they hear gunshots, they don't really know the extent of everything that's happening. Uh, But in the meanwhile, you've got uh, white people who have been caught up in this mob being deputized by the real police, put like a badge pinned on them, go get a gun, go kill somebody is the order that they're being given and they are breaking into sporting goods stores to steal rifles, guns, any, any weapon they can find for this coming incursion into Greenwood. And then you mentioned the whistle. So I'll let you tell the story, but what, what is that? Where did the whistle come from? What did it signify? And is that one of the most consequential sounds ever heard on
1: American soil? You uh, kind of got to give me goosebumps when you describe it that way, because I've never thought of it in those terms, but I think it probably was. Uh, overnight, and again, how exactly this was organized, no one really knows, but it clearly was. Overnight, these mobs, you know, who had armed themselves in the manner that you had just described, were basically dispatched through word of mouth, picking up the telephone or talking to their neighbors, dispatched to various strategic points along Greenwood. and Basically, the word was wait for the signal. And at 5.08 a.m., there's the shrill whistle, and there's some debate as to whether it came from a locomotive on the railroad tracks or from a centrally located uh, factory. But the the meaning of it was clear, which was it was the signal to attack. And so one witness says from behind every car and tree and building, this white mob came forth firing, and uh, they met fierce resistance at first because a lot of the African-Americans knew what was coming, and they had basically taken their shotguns and their rifles and any weapon they could find and plenty of ammunition and and stuck their guns out the windows, and, and for for a brief while, they did repel them because there. I think there were several whites who died in the process. Uh, but of course, the numbers are just too arrayed, arrayed against them and too significant a way. And uh, within a couple of hours, I think Greenwood was overrun. Well, because because then you have I don't know if it's army reserves or regular
0: army, but you have professional troops show up um, to augment the mob. And you even have World War One era fighter planes in the sky. I don't know what they're doing. I don't think they're, they're not dropping bombs, but they're they're doing something. I mean, it got way bigger than just a a a riot. It it became almost military.
1: Well, the National Guard showed up at noon, essentially, when everything right. was over with. Uh, okay. And the the mom pretty much had free reign all morning. The planes,
0: but they're arresting people throughout the rest of the day.
1: They're arresting people and taking them taking them into uh, detainment camps. The planes. The speculation is they belonged to local oil companies weren't just they were the people in those biplanes were armed and they were tossing, you know, this Molotov cocktail like incendiaries, you know, at all these buildings. And so in and, and and one of the deal, one of the that perhaps more than any single thing was what was so terrifying and so dispiriting right. to the people in Greenwood it was because this is this had taken stuff to a whole different level plus the fact that the mob had had commanded high ground at the, at the corner of Greenwood and set up uh, machine guns, too. So they brought to bear incredible firepower to this.
0: A person living in 1921 is probably aware of the existence of planes and and have probably seen pictures of them operating in a war theater. But the idea of there being planes swooping down over a, a town street and dropping incendiaries, that's like something out of a nightmare. That's almost like dragons in the sky.
1: There was two two stories. Uh, the book begins with an interview I did with uh, a, a woman who was in her late 80s at the time named Eldoris McConnersey, and she was nine years old. The morning this happened, and her mother woke her up and said, "Eldoris, we need to go. The white people are killing the colored folks. And so her parents drag her out the door, and, and they're headed north along these railroad tracks. And she she obviously is concerned. Confused by it all, but then all of a sudden this plane appears, and she described it to me like fat raindrops falling in the ground around her, and she realized, uh, and she realized what that what that was actually was, were bullets coming from these planes. The other story was uh, I mentioned John Stratford before, and they had a huge hotel there. I'm writing a piece on for some Smithsonian Magazine about this, and we found his memoirs where. He had a group of men who are with him in the lobby of the hotel, willing to fight with him to the death to defend the hotel. But then the plane shows up and it swerves and it swerves at the hotel and tosses something flaming through the transom of the hotel. And all the men except Stratford said, no, nope, they got us. Not, right. not going to do this. So the, the planes were a very, very big deal in all this. So now the, that that day
0: turns to night. You've got white mob, I guess, mob members because because they're not full time mobsters. These are people that are in normal life before this. This, But so now that some of them have taken prisoners. They've um, tied rope around Greenwood residents. They're sitting watch over them. Like at what point does this this uh, at what point does this wear off? And people say, wait a minute, what the hell am I doing? What have I just done? How did that how did that play
1: out? Well, an important part of this is kind of the the methodology that the mob used in in destroying Greenwood. They went from business to business, house to house, church to church, uh, basically forcing the residents out. If the residents resisted, they they, they often were killed. Uh, Then the places, the homes, businesses were ransacked, looted. A lot of times women were waiting with their shopping bags to go into these houses and steal anything that they could carry off. And then, you know, when the, when the looting was done, the places were burned. And so at the end of, you know, within a couple hours, the only things that were left standing essentially were the outhouses because evidently the mob didn't feel like they were worth wasting their kerosene on. So ultimately there was nothing left to burn and the national guard had got there. But by that time, and you know, and again, Hundreds of Greenwood residents were being marched through the streets to detention in the convention hall or the baseball park. Or thousands of people were left homeless. And, you know, to your question, when did the fever break? I'm not I'm not sure the fever ever broke. But the question is, people started to realize uh, that not only was this going to make Tulsa look terrible in the eyes of the world, which it briefly did but they were uh, exposed to murder charges. And so then this massive conspiracy of silence begins. You have a photograph in the book,
0: in the middle of the book of, it looks like a 20 year old man holding a, uh, like a a boy to me, holding a, 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 holding a rifle or a shotgun, just kind of posing in front of the Dreamland movie theater, which is on fire, which is the Dreamland movie theater is very important in Greenwood. It's like the, uh, it's like one of the the mile the, one of the uh the most important i guess cultural institutions it's a stage it's where they show movies so he's standing in front of that it's on fire he's got this look on his face and i don't want to get political here but it does remind me of the looks on a lot of the faces of some of the people we saw protesting in early january it's just this kind of like look what i did and i'm not 100% sure why i did it i was in the moment and now i'm standing in front of it and you know, it's, tw- it's a 20-year-old. It's a man who should be responsible for his own actions. But there's also like – almost like a, an, an innocence lost. And you just wonder – and you talk about some of the people who had taken part in this riot and then massacre years and years later, committed suicide or couldn't speak of it publicly or just would get this vacant look in their eyes according to their spouse when the subject would come up. But to a large extent, like – I don't feel as though Tulsa, at least in your retelling, i don't feel as though the community really dealt with it like any time within the generations after
1: they they didn't deal with it you know in any meaningful way at all. i mean the stories are that you know that uh, after it was done, men put notches in their weapons to to s- signify how many blacks they had killed, and there were postcards that were sent. Uh, all over you know distributed widely to various parts of the country with scenes of the of the massacre so I mean there was a period of time when a lot of people in Tulsa were actually proud of it the city the city leaders however knew that this was a bad, you know for the for, as a PR problem this was a terrible thing the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Houston, papers from all over the country came and Reported from Tulsa for a couple of days, and and Tulsa leaders were uh, remorseful to them. But as soon as the national spotlight dimmed, what they tried to do was they tried to appropriate the land that the burned out land, and uh, you know, for white purposes, they were repelled in court. But you know, it, it became this thing where everybody knew that this was a bad thing for Tulsa, and so within a few years, you could have moved to Tulsa a few years later and never known this had happened. And that's incredible. And the best description of this came from a night, a guy named Bill Williams. He told this to a high school student in the in the 1950s. Williams went on to be a teacher, and this kid was Don Ross as one of his students. And Williams spoke of what happened to his students that day and said, you know, 30 years ago when I was your age, this is what happened in Tulsa. And Don Ross jumped up and he says, There's no way this could happen. And let's not know no, no about it. And well, Bill Williams took the time to show. Ross photographs of the bodies and the burned out buildings and introduced him to other survivors. And so Ross finally says, well, how do you explain that this could be kept a secret all, all these years? And William's reply was, he said, black people will talk to you about it if they know who you are. But after now that you know what happened, you can probably understand that if you lived through this once, you probably don't want to have to live through it again and he said the white people were silent but probably for a different reason one is that they were ashamed or two all these years later they're still afraid of being arrested and so even though the dynamic of the of the amnesia the conspiracy of silence was different both black and white kind of you know in a in a strange way conspired to make sure that it kind of disappeared from history
0: so we think that something like 300 people ultimately were killed and God knows how many injured and how many dollars in in property lost.
1: Is that, is that what we think was the end result? Yeah. 300 is kind of the conventional figure now, hundreds, 500, 600, 700 injured and uh, various estimates of what was lost in Greenwood in today's dollars range from 50 million to 200 million. Was anyone ever arrested? 88 people were indicted uh, I think of the, as a number 57 of them, African-Americans, only one person was ever convicted. And that was the Tulsa police chief for dereliction of duty. And I think that one of the things that happened afterwards is, is that given all the things we've just been talking about, the Tulsa courts just have, didn't have the stomach or the interest to relive uh, this with, with prosecutions.
0: Can you imagine a situation today where hundreds of people are murdered in one day? And no one goes to (laughs) no one ends up going to trial and being convicted. It seems inconceivable, but it probably seemed inconceivable to the most of the country a hundred years ago, certainly in places like New York and Chicago. If you told someone that something like that was possible, I feel as though they would have said, no, it's not, but, but it actually happened that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's why it goes back to my incredulity when I first heard about it. And this is, one of the great American stories, I think. And as ugly as it is, it's just it's just it, it's so incumbent on us to really look at it. Um, a really important part of my experience is I grew up in the upper Midwest uh, in a small town, no black people. Uh, at the day that in 20 years ago, when when my boss brought me that piece, uh, racial issues were completely irrelevant to me. Um, I just from Minnesota. Uh, yeah, yeah, Minnesota. And, okay. and, and, you know, I just wasn't interested. I just figured that race was racial stuff was developing as it should. And then, but when I learned the history, not only for that first story, but in researching a book and learned that what happened in Tulsa was completely consistent for that time in America, different only that, you know, unique only in its degree, it just really changed the way I looked at the world. And I and I realized that we had this huge problem that we hadn't been looking at, and it changed my heart. And my theory is that there are millions upon millions of other white people like me, people of goodwill, people of intellectual curiosity, as I think that your a lot of your listeners are. That if they only if they only learned the history of the real history uh, in some significant way, then then it would change their hearts too. That is my. Hope and prayer for this book, and since what happened in this summer, it's found a a large audience i'm pleased to say and i'm and I'm really gratified to know that so many white people have read the book have had the same kind of a epiphany that I did years ago that there was a there's a level of understanding and learning the history that wasn't there before, and I just think that that is so important today
0: well tim i'm I'm so glad you said that, and we can end on that note because. That's exactly what I want to happen with this episode of the podcast. I spent, uh, I work on Wall Street. Most of what I talk about is finance and investing. I spent the whole month of February doing podcast episodes for Black History Month, but I wanted to do Black Financial History Month. And we went through stuff like uh, the GI Bill and the inherently racist practices in things like housing and getting mortgages after World War II that effectively kept Millions of African American families from the American Dream and being able to compound their wealth the same way that uh, returning soldiers who were white were able to, and you know we we covered uh, the first black millionaire on Wall Street. We talked about Jeremiah Hamilton uh, in a previous episode, whom also most people have never heard of this man's existence. Unbelievable story. Uh, we had a we had a historian from uh, Sydney, Australia, believe it or not, who's an expert on this guy. Wrote a great book called The Prince of Darkness. So we, we've been talking about black financial history or the African-American experience in America with wealth um, and the economy and stock market. But I really wanted to end on this note because I thought your book was so powerful. And I agree with you. I think it's so important for people to read this and have their hearts maybe not changed, but but at least affected right. by it. Right. And so I don't know that there's a more important takeaway. If you, If you read this book, you come across it you spend a couple of hours and you just say, oh my God, how could something like this have happened? What else have I not really been uh, fully appreciating throughout my life about the, the struggle that other people have gone through? So that's that's what I took away from it. and I'm so glad you came on the podcast this week to tell us all about the story and hopefully thousands of people buy this book as a result of hearing you talk about it today. So thank I just want to say thank you very much.
1: Well, I can't tell you personally what it means to me personally and, and, and in a larger sense that you have not only read the book but internalized it uh, the way you have it's it's hard it's not easy it's it's yeah. it's, it's painful but it's also noble uh, and i think it's humane to make the effort to try to understand people who are different than us and what their histories might what their history might have been so I, I applaud you and i couldn't be more grateful to be part of this today
0: uh, th- thanks again, Tim. And the book is called The Burning by Tim Madigan. Grab it at uh, Amazon, find it at your library, buy it at Barnes and Noble, where- wherever you come across it or wherever you can order it from. I highly recommend reading it. And uh, Tim, thank you again. Uh, this is just a, a really important uh, story. I think you tell it really well. And uh, I think we're going to turn a lot of new people on to find out what actually happened here. So th- thank you. Thanks for listening check us out at thecompoundnews.com for daily investing and market insights. You can watch all of our videos at youtube.com slash the compound Talk to you next week.